Genesis 37, verses 1 to 4. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilpah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. First things first here, just a little bit of product placement. As you can see, I'm wearing my Revel Roasters hat, which I sort of am because I was too lazy to take a shower and comb my hair. But also, if you happen to be in the Salisbury area and you're looking for good coffee, then check out Revel Roasters. It's got a special going on right now. You get a bag of coffee and a cool mug for 25 bucks. I'm really kind of giving you the commercial here, but whatever. All right. Welcome to week one of our sermon series on the story of Joseph. Now, in order for us to understand what's going on here, we got to get a little bit, of, a little bit of background, actually, a, a lot bit of background. But here's what you need to know: the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it breaks down into four major sections. The first eleven chapters comprise what scholars refer to as the primeval history. This is the first major section of the book, and, and this includes the stories, plural, the stories of creation, the story of the first murder, uh, a really weird narrative about divine beings having sex with women and procreating, the story of Noah and the flood, and then another really weird story about Noah getting off the boat, planting a vineyard, waiting a few years for the, the grapes to be in season, making some wine, and then promptly getting hammered and naked, only to have one of his sons named Ham look upon his father's nakedness. Whatever that means, uh, opinions run the gamut. We also have some genealogies in those first 11 chapters and uh, concludes with the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, these stories are largely mythical in nature. That is, they deal with massive theological concepts. They're not meant to be read as bald historical retellings of the ancient past. They, they have a theological axe to grind here. The book of Genesis then turns a corner pretty sharp corner, in fact, in chapter 12. It, it moves from what appears to be a story of the world, of humanity, a story that's sort of universal in scope, to a story of a single family, the family of Abraham, the family that will become Israel. And this honestly really, really, really messed up family narrative, it comprises the other three major sections of the book. First, we have a long story of Abraham, his son, the, the son of promise, Isaac, features as something of a minor character here. In fact, Isaac features sort of as a minor character in the entire book of, of Genesis. Because in the third major section, we move to a long story of one of Abraham's grandkids, Jacob. Again, his twin brother Esau provides a very minor character for this larger story. And then finally, we have a long story of one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. The other 11 brothers 
feature as minor characters here. Now, to enter into any one of these longer stories unaware of what precedes is sort of like starting a really good TV series just midway through. Think of something classic like Breaking Bad or Lost or How I Met Your Mother, the, the tragic ending notwithstanding, or Friday Night Lights, one of my favorite shows of all time, or even The Gilmore Girls. You definitely should not start any of these shows right in the middle of the series. If a true fan heard that you were doing something completely insane like that and willfully depriving yourself of the absolute joy of watching the character and plot development unfold before your eyes in sweatpants while you're on your couch binge watching Netflix, they would, they would publicly scold you. And rightfully so, the show is too good. You've got to start it from the beginning. It's important for you to do this. Now, I agree with this tactic, especially when it comes to good television, but I'm about to break my own rule here as we jump in waist deep with those four introductory verses from Genesis 37 into a sermon series on the story of Joseph. This is the first episode of Genesis season four, the Joseph story, if you will. And the reason why I feel sort of okay to do this is because of how unique the story of Joseph is compared to the rest of the book. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Walter Brueggemann, he writes, the Joseph narrative offers a kind of literature which is distinctive in the book of Genesis. It is distinguished in every way from the narratives dealing with Abraham and Jacob, otherwise known as Genesis seasons two and three. Another uh, important Old Testament scholar, Nahum Sarna, he concludes, the story of Joseph is by far the longest and most complete narrative in Genesis. It's set forth by a master storyteller who employs with consummate skill the novelistic techniques of character delineation, psychological manipulation, and dramatic suspense. So, because the story of Joseph is its own self-contained narrative, we're just going to jump in. Now, of course, there's some purist somewhere cringing, waiting to publicly scold us for willfully depriving ourselves of the absolute joy of watching the Genesis story unfold. But again, I think that we're going to be okay. I will say, however... While we have already hit play on Genesis season four, the, the Joseph story, I, I should lean over at this point and just really quick give you one important detail, one important piece of background information that will really fill out what's happening here. And it's this, Joseph's family typifies the description completely and utterly dysfunctional. Earlier in the last season, season three of the Genesis series, his dad, Jacob, famously duped his twin brother out of his birthright for a bowl of soup, no less, and out of his parental blessing when he presented himself to his nearly blind father as his brother, complete with costumes. As a result of these deceptions, Jacob had to escape for his life so that his brother Esau didn't murder him. In return, 
Jacob was then famously duped by his uncle. Dysfunction, it turns out, runs very deep in this dysfunctional family. You see, Jacob escaped the wrath of his brother by going to hide out with his mom's family. One more brief piece of dysfunction here. Jacob's mom, Rebecca, loved Jacob. Jacob's dad, Isaac, loved his brother Esau, which I'm sure was not the source of either of these brothers' therapy sessions. While Jacob was with his mom's family, he falls in love with his uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, really hard. In fact, it was love at first sight. For, for Jacob, we're unsure how Rachel felt about any of this. The story says that Jacob sees Rachel from a distance coming to water her father's flocks at the well where Jacob was sitting. And Jacob says in response, oh, I'll water your flocks. Hmm? Hmm? See my eyebrows? Hmm? What a great ancient Near Eastern line, I'll water your flocks, which he does. And then the Bible says he kisses her, he lifts his voice, and he cries. So Jacob, we now know, is a crier. Okay, interestingly, but unsurprisingly, we're not afforded any details about Rachel's thought process other than after all of this weird stuff has taken place, she runs to tell her dad what's going on. And here's where Jacob's story really starts to unravel. Laban was not about to give away his daughter for free. In fact, he makes Jacob agree to work seven years of hard labor for Rachel's hand in marriage. But the Bible is not void of sentimentality, so it says that Jacob's seven years of service seemed like a short time because of his love for her. (laughs) That is sweet. That's a really good line from the, the biblical author there. But after seven years, I assume that Jacob had a countdown going on in his tent somewhere. He goes to his uncle and says, the time has come, uncle. Give me my wife so that I can sleep with her. You know, it's just typical nephew uncle talk. So Laban invites all of the people of that place and prepares a banquet. This detail in my mind is bizarre. Just tuck it away and think of the worst wedding that you've ever been to, the most uncomfortable wedding you've ever been to, and just multiply it by a billion. Because somehow in the evening of this uh, gathering, of this wedding, Laban takes his daughter Leah, Rachel's sister, aka not Rachel, and brings her to Jacob and Jacob sleeps with her. Now, if it helps, They did weddings a little bit differently in the ancient world than we do now. It was more of a festival than a three-hour event. Uh, So Jacob had most likely taken not a few drinks here. Uh, He was having a good time. He was loosened up. He was dancing. He was doing the cha-cha slide. Uh, His wife was all veiled up. It was dark. He was in love. He was finally about to have sex with someone for the very first time. It was a big deal for Jacob. It's no wonder that he fell for the old switcheroo. He was probably drunk and overly excited. But it all hits him in the morning because, as the author of Genesis states, there she was, not Rachel, but Leah, unveiled in all her glory. And Jacob again says to his uncle, what, what have you done to me, man? Didn't I work for
for seven years for you, for Rachel? Why did you betray me? Note the irony. Jacob, the betrayer of his brother, now accusing someone else of betraying him. I don't know about you, but as a, just a, a reader of this story, I've got a good amount of questions at this point in the narrative. And, and I'm going to go ahead and give drunk Jacob a pass for not knowing who was in the tent with him. That's, that's the least of my issues. I can make sense of that one. But what about, what about Rachel? Where was she? What did she think of of her dad's plan? Did she know? Was she in on it? I can't believe that she'd be in on it. Uh, When did the swap happen? Was there a point in time when she was all veiled up dancing uh, on the floor with Jacob and then the the switcheroo took place? And where did she go for the night? Also, what about Leah? We know that she's older than Rachel, and we know that this is why Laban put her in this position. We also know that she has something going on with her eyes. The Bible describes her eyes being weak or soft, and that really could mean anything. She could be cross-eyed, she could be nearly blind, or it could mean something nice, like... Leah has beautiful, sweet eyes, which the author might be throwing in as a contrast to her sister, Rachel, who's just gorgeous, top to bottom. But Leah, she's got okay eyes. Either way, she's not saying anything in this text about wanting to be married or wanting Jacob, we can assume, but she's silent in the story. Was this like a Skylar sister situation? Did they both like Jacob Alexander Hamilton? Did Jacob both have have both of them singing helpless? Snuck that one in there for you Hamilton fans. I, I mean, I doubt that there's too many eligible bachelors just rolling up to the well looking for a wife. Uh, single ladies, just humor me here. You think that you have a tough time finding a date after college in Salisbury, and and I'm sure you do. Uh, I'm not here to deny that. The, The pool of eligible bachelors isn't overwhelming. But imagine living on the family farm in Padan Aram in the second century BC. There was probably less men there. Probably. It could have been close. I'm not sure. But finally, what about the wedding guests? Can you imagine this? You'd never forget this wedding. Hey, you remember the time that crazy Laban gave the wrong daughter to Jacob? Yeah, I thought Ross saying Rachel's name at the altar was awkward, but this is insane. (laughs) All of this, all of these details are deliciously bizarre and it makes for an awesome story. But there's more. Laban bargains with Jacob, getting him to agree to serve another seven years for Rachel. Now, there's often some confusion here. Jacob does not have to wait another seven years to marry Rachel. He actually marries her the following week after he finishes out what has become he and Leah's marriage festival, which I'm sure that'll work out, right? I mean, being married is totally easy. I'm sure that being married to sisters is really easy too. 
Rachel probably took Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and every other weekend, and Leah got Tuesdays and Thursdays. So everything's just all hunky-dory here. Sisters marry the same guy. They have a schedule worked out. And then things get tough because Leah starts popping out kids left and right. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And this is a huge source of jealousy for Rachel because having kids is a big deal in the ancient world. And Leah apparently is super fertile. Just one look at those soft eyes and boom, baby. The narrative It compresses a lot of time here, time enough for Leah to have four kids. And in this time, Rachel is not getting pregnant. And I doubt it's from a lack of trying. As we'll soon find out, Jacob prefers the company of Rachel, maybe even stealing a few Tuesdays and Thursdays in the agreed upon schedule. That's a joke. There there is no agreed upon schedule, just for the sake of of clarity here. But his preference for Rachel is to be expected. He loved her. He has served 14 years to Laban to be able to to be with her. But the baby making, it's just not happening for them. So Rachel problem solves and gives Jacob her maidservant, Billa, to sleep with. I'm, I'm sure there won't be an issue here, right? Now, this is Rachel's plan because any children that Billa delivers will be sort of credited to Rachel's account. Uh, One Old Testament scholar named John Golden Gay writes, the child that a woman receives onto her knees or lap immediately after its mother gives birth to it or that a man subsequently dandles on his knees is her or his child. This is the ancient world, remember. And like clockwork, Billa delivers two sons, Dan and Naphtali. But not to be outdone, Leah has a maidservant too. Her name is Zilpah. And Leah is very competitive. We, we learn this too in the story. So to prolong this weird fertility contest with her sister, Leah hands Zilpah over to Jacob for him to sleep with. And Zilpah promptly has two sons of her own, Gad and Asher. I guess more uh, appropriately stated, two sons of Leah's own, but still. The story, it it continues, and if you can believe this, I'd say it even gets weirder, because in the next narrative, Leah procures for herself some love plants. Uh, One of her sons finds them and gives them to her, because by this time, she's stopped having kids. Rachel still hasn't had any of her own biological kids. So in this little vignette, Rachel hears about Leah's love plants, and she asks her for them. These plants are elsewhere translated as mandrakes. Mandrakes were widely used in the ancient world for medicinal purposes and ritualistic purposes. They were thought to have hallucinogenic and narcotic effects. Uh, The love plant is probably different here. Uh, They were thought to be part aphrodisiac, part fertility drug. So the idea then is that they might help Rachel to finally get pregnant. But Leah is just infuriated by this suggestion that she give away her love plants. Why why would I do that, she says. Isn't it bad enough for me that Jacob sleeps with you all the time? I don't even get my Tuesdays and Thursdays anymore. The, The tension between these sisters, palpable, okay? But Leah is a woman of needs. So she strikes a deal with Rachel. Okay, I'll give you the love plants if 
I get to have Jacob for the night. Notice how passive of a character Jacob is in all of this, okay? But then the story really ups, ups the ante here, especially in the Hebrew as Rachel responds to her sister, Yishkav Imak. <laughs> Which you don't know this, but just hear me say that. What? Snap, son. That that is bad news. This word, this word, yishkav, it's loaded. It's from the verbal root shakav, which is used for, get this, illicit or irregular sexual affairs. It's not used for sex between a husband and a wife. So Rachel is saying, give me the love plants and you, dear sister, you can prostitute yourself out for the night. I know he'll be back in my bed tomorrow. <laughs> These sisters, it's not good. And because Genesis is depicting a huge dumpster fire of family relationships here, wouldn't you know it? Leah from this uh, encounter gets pregnant again. Number five, Issachar, another son. And then she has another son, Zebulun, and then a daughter named Dinah. So there's three women here, Leah and Billa and Zilpah. There are eight kids between them and Rachel, nothing. Actually, I think my math's wrong. I think that's, I think that takes us up to 10 kids. There, but still, there's nothing happening here until finally, miraculously, God remembers Rachel, responds to her prayers, we can assume, and lets her conceive. This is a very ancient way of understanding um, the fertility process uh, in the ancient world. God is the one who opens or closes wombs. She becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son and says, God has taken away my shame. She named him Joseph, saying to herself, may the Lord give me another son. The, the verbal root that Joseph's name is based on, Yasaf, it means to add or to continue. So through the naming of Joseph, which it would be weird for a woman to be naming the kids here, but we see this in this um, story as Jacob is a passive character. It's almost as if she's saying, with Joseph, add more and help this to continue. And eventually, it does continue. She gives birth to another son named Benjamin. In fact, delivering this final son for Jacob is Rachel's last act. She dies due to complications in the birthing process. So we have all of these kids. It's a massive mess of a story of just intertwined, broken familial relationships. But it's a, it's a, it's a story for sure. Now we can think of all of this as a major plot line in Genesis season three. I'm not sure what to compare this to, honestly. Big Love on HBO, it, it's a lot of crazy, which is why when we initially hit play on Genesis season four, just a few moments ago, we were devoid of all of the necessary background. That's my fault and the purists agree with that assessment. These verses, on their first reading, they didn't mean as much to us as if we had watched the previous seasons of this Genesis series. But now that we're caught up, let's, let's try it again. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17. So we've advanced in the story a bit. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. It notes the sons of Billa, which would be Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, which would be Gad and Asher. Both of these are his father's wives, wives number three and four. And he brought their father 
Jacob, a bad report about his brothers. Now, this part of the story is merely setting the stage for what follows. Joseph is depicted as a bratty, entitled little snitch. We've been highlighting all of this family drama, and most certainly, it's carried over from the moms to the kids. Leah's kids probably feel slighted because their mom isn't Rachel, the favored wife. The kids of the maidservants probably feel like the bastards of the bunch, second-class citizens, especially compared to Leah's and Rachel's kids. Add to the dynamic the fact that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn from Leah, has just a couple of chapters prior to this, he's just shakaved Billa, Rachel's maidservant, which can't have sat well with his half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali. That would make family dinners pretty awkward between the three of them. And then there's Joseph, who we soon learn is dad's clear favorite, even more than Benjamin, who is really the son born late in Jacob's life. But Joseph is the chosen one. So in this establishing scene, Joseph is capitalizing on his favorite status by telling his dad some bad news about his brothers. He's, he's ratting them out, which ostensibly is what's happening here. We don't know what the brothers did, but that's not the point of the story. The point is the brothers have reason to hate Joseph. And there's more. Joseph isn't just the favored son. He also gets presents. It it continues. Now, Israel, which is another name for Jacob, says Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Again, that's weird because Benjamin is really the one that was born to him in his old age, but let's just let that sit. It says that uh, Jacob made an ornate robe for Joseph. And when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Again, Nahum Sarna translates this line a little bit differently. He writes, they could not abide his friendly speech. The brothers could not hear anything peaceable or kind or good that Joseph was saying because they hated him so much. They were unable to listen to this smug little brat with a special robe. Now, speaking of the robe, which honestly we don't know a whole lot about, it was probably more than a coat of many colors, which for you King James only types, this might be something rattling in the back of your of your mind. The coat was probably an ornamented, I like to think of it as a sequined, long sleeve or ankle length coat. Um, the word that it's derived from pasim comes from pas, which means palm of the hand or sole of the the foot, so it could mean something about the length of of the coat. Whatever the coat looked like, the point is it was something of a letterman's jacket, though the pins that Joseph was receiving was for his father's love. And it's no wonder that his brothers hated the sight of this coat and Joseph because it was a perpetual reminder of their not being enough in the eyes of their father. I should also note here, too, that the only other time an an ornamented coat shows up, this uh, ketonet pasim in Hebrew, is in a description of how the virgin princesses were clothed in earlier times from 2 Samuel. So the only two people that are wearing a coat like this are Joseph 
and princesses. Some transgender readers of the Bible, like Austin Hartke, see in this story an example of someone, Joseph, not wearing clothes that measure up to the standard gender expectation of the day. And this is a really interesting line of thought, though I, I can't imagine a woman's or even a womanish garment being a gift for a son in a patriarchal society. That would have made Jacob a uber progressive person, and I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, Robert Alter argues it is a unisex garment. Again, you have Joseph wearing it, you've got some princesses wearing it. Both genders represented, so it's a unisex garment. And because Robert Alter is just awesome, he, he adds, it was a product of ancient haute couture, which if you've watched Project Runway, you know means high-end handcrafted designer fashion. But, but to be honest, even this description seems weird in a patriarchal context. The only thing we can say for sure is Joseph's brothers hated him for this coat. And Joseph's dad loves him more than anyone else and gave him a fancy coat to prove it. What in the world are we to do with this story? Here's the thing about preaching stories. They're meant to stick with you. They cannot be reduced to a single point or moral. You can't just extract something from them as, as, a, as a takeaway. These few verses are not in the Bible simply to say, now, now don't be a schemer, don't deceive people, don't trick people, especially a brother who might murder you. Don't have four wives and a butt ton of kids. And, and if you do, don't love one of them more than the others. It's, it's not a story about being a snitch and why that will in fact get you stitched. That, that's not why this is sacred scripture. At a macro level, this entire season of the Genesis series, the Joseph story, is here to demonstrate how Israel eventually ends up in Egypt. It's a plot point getting us from Canaan to Egypt, setting up the stage for the Exodus event. And maybe more importantly, it's the fulfillment of Genesis 15 when God promised Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own in, in Egypt. But the story is not just an interlude to get Israel in the right place at the right time. Stories in general, and this one in particular, are meant to teach us something. This is what Torah means. It's not just law. It's, it's teaching. It's instruction. And these stories are meant to instruct. But I don't, I don't want to do what American pastors usually do at this point. I don't want to tell you what this story is supposed to mean. I don't want to reduce it in that way. I, I don't think that's appropriate for one, but I don't think that's a good way to look at this passage. Instead, I'd rather leave you with some introductory questions. What do we do with this entire train wreck of a story? Where is God in it? If we sit for a bit with this dysfunctional family, what, what do we learn? What do we apply? How, how do we as readers change because of it? What, if anything, does this story show me or teach me about Jesus? I want you to come back to these questions again and again throughout this series, and I want you to let them work on you over time. A good story isn't just interpreted. It's, 
in conversation with you. It's meant to be pondered and considered and returned to again and again. It's a gem that we turn to see how light is refracted in different ways. So here's where I'll leave us. May we consider this story, its importance, and its meaning for us. We're going to be building on this story in the coming weeks. But for now, ask the questions. Let it sit with you. Contemplate your your own family dynamic, your, your family history even. Contemplate your relationships with your parents or your kids. Consider Joseph and his brothers and then enter into the story. I hope that this is something that will be with you as a companion over the next few weeks. And we'll see where it goes next week.